During the message, and if you have the Ephesian booklet we've provided, if not, they're in the arcade. You can also get them uh, on PDF. You can download them on your electronic device. We'll be on page six today. But during the message, if you're bored, if your mind wanders, which I completely understand, I want you to jot down some notes this morning in your wandering, simply to ask and answer the question, how has God blessed you? Can you enumerate some of the blessings of God in your life? And that could occupy the entire message, and that would be fine with me. It would be a good use of your time to write down and capture how has God blessed you. Uh, Last week, Lloyd gave us a great introduction about Paul's apostolic authority, about his relationship to Christ by the will of God. He's not doing this because he wanted to. It wasn't a business plan. Uh, It was something that God is going to make the apostle Paul do to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he goes on to speak about the will of God, speaking to saints, living believers in Ephesus, and as Lloyd eloquently illustrated last weekend, that you and I are saints. Called, chosen, selected of God, we are the holy ones. We aren't dead people recognized later on. We are living believers. We are saints. He went on to talk about the grace of God. The grace of God is a greeting. We read it as a salutation by the grace and peace of God. But that misses the point entirely. Uh, To say that it's like dear Ephesus or salutation or a formal Greek greeting misses the point entirely. He's explaining to them, you have the grace of God, undeserved favor, and the face of deserved wrath. And because of that, you're at peace with him. He leads with really big theology. You deserved hell, and God gave you grace. And because you stand in that grace, you're at peace with him. It's not just a cursory greeting that Paul likes to use in a letter. It's leading with the biggest theology, the biggest truth. Today, I want your thinking caps on. This is a little bit of a heady text, and I will do my best to help you, but you need to do your best to listen and look at the text and take some good notes because it is a, a heavy passage with a lot of deep theology. As Paul begins this letter, uh, Lloyd gave us the background from Acts 18. In Asia Minor, Ephesus would have been a leading player in that region. Uh, They had the Temple of Diana, also known as Artemis. And because of that, in that culture, you had wealth, art, uh, a lot of artistic culture. You had magic. You had a lot of cults. And we will look at that as we unfold the book of Ephesus. Uh, Paul's there shy of three years. And the gospel not only goes in and changes individual lives, but we get a unique picture of how the gospel affected a city. Because they essentially run Paul out because he's affecting the magician's trade and the idol maker's trade. So the gospel had, we might say, some unintended consequences on one respect, because as people came to Christ, they quit worshiping Diana and Artemis and started working Christ, and so commerce fell off for the merchants of the cults and the idols and the silversmiths. Um, The extravagant praise we will look at today is really verse 3 through 14. We're just going to begin that this this weekend with uh, verses 3 to 6. The main idea here, it's simple, but it's big. It's what God has done in Christ. What God has done in Christ. And John Stott put it this way. He begins by blessing God for blessing us with every 
inconceivable blessing. He begins by blessing God for blessing us with every conceivable blessing. So let's read this together. It is a paragraph of the Word of God. Let's read it well. Let's read it clearly, articulate it. We'll read it in unison. I think we have it on the screen for you to read. Let's read it aloud. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Uh, This begins with God deserves our praise. He's blessed us with so many blessings. The response of the believer is we need to bless him in return. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14, is one sentence in the Greek New Testament, 202 words. Some uh, academics have measured it against classic Greek outside the New Testament and said it's the longest Greek sentence that has ever been written. It creates both a cumbersome challenge for theologians and scholars and people who study the Greek language, as well as a host of interpretations. It is one of eight very long sentences that Paul will write in the book of Ephesians. Commentators have tried to find ways to explain this vivid imagery. We enter the epistle through a magnificent gateway, writes Findlay. It's a golden chain of many links, writes Dale. A kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and spectacular colors, J.A. Robinson. John McKay's musical simile, it's a rhapsodic adoration. It is comparable to the overture of an opera, which contains successive melodies that are to follow. Dr. Harold Honer, a professor of mine in my years in graduate school at Dallas Seminary, was one of the hardest New Testament professors. He was a delightful individual, but a brutal teacher. And he spent his life writing a book on Ephesians. He died about not long after the book was completed. He died after a run. He was an indomitable individual, brilliant man. And he writes, the abundance of descriptive words of God's purpose, plan, and action in a long, complicated sentence is entirely fitting with the scope of a eulogy. The abundance of words does not denote verbosity, but instead a multiplicity of words to praise God for his supernatural plan and actions that are almost beyond description. If you've had a child, a teenager, junior high school that's come home from from class or an event, something exciting happened in their day, what do they do? They can't wait to tell mom or dad, and they just go a thousand miles an hour, and it's one sentence, and they're so excited, and of course they embellish the story, and it gets bigger and bigger with time, but they just, whoa, it's one long sentence, right? To sanctify that emotion and energy, when Paul begins writing the Ephesian believers, he can't stop. God's Spirit is moving Paul, and he writes an eloquent, beautiful, marvelous introduction to talk about these blessings that we have in Christ. In verse 3, we have, blessed be God, 
the God and Father. The word for blessed can be, some of your Bibles might say praised, but blessed is a better rendering, eulogetos, eulogetos. We've talked about this before. I hope review does not hurt. In English, I want to speak on three brief, briefly on words. Euphonium, E-U, the prefix pleasing or good. Phonium from harmonium, a good sound. So if you hear someone play euphonium, it's a pleasant, beautiful sound. We speak of euphoria, E-U, pleasing or good. Fork uh, from a stem that means, really means the idea of a feeling, a good, uh, the weight of a feeling. So we use the word euphoric that you feel euphoria after anesthesia perhaps. You feel really good after you take four ibuprofen maybe. Uh, you have a euphoric feeling. And then we have eulogy, E-U, good or pleasing, logos, logia, words, typically associated with a funeral. So someone gives a eulogy, or we hear eulogies at someone's funeral. Uh, a eulogy does not have to be at a funeral only, which is why many commentators, including Dr. Honer, call this a eulogy. It is good, pleasing words blessing God. And with the idea of eulogetos, the idea of blessing is tied into it. It only applies to God. This word is found nowhere in classical Greek. It's a biblical term, a biblical concept, it, it is found nowhere beyond the New Testament Greek language, and there only sparsely. This passage, as I said, a little bit of thinking. Christ belongs to God. Christ is in the Father because he belongs to God. He's in relationship to the Father. And because Christ belongs to the Father and he's in relationship to the Father, he then sends the Spirit. The Spirit comes to you if you trusted Christ, you believed in Christ. The Spirit comes to you and indwells you. So you are now in the Spirit, and you are in Christ, and you are in relationship with God the Father. Ephesians chapter 1 is chock full of Trinitarian doctrine. We at Fellowship hold to a Trinity, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-equal, three distinct persons. Different ministries at some way of measurement, very complicated, very hard to define all the nuances. Ephesians chapter 1 will refer in three blocks to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It is, you can't miss it. And as we read in these verses, we already were introduced to God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and spiritual blessings. Blessings that come from the Spirit of God, not material blessings. We'll talk more about in a minute. This passage, in as simple reduction as we can say, is about in Christ therefore are set. Simple, clean, as, as simple as you can reduce it. If you have trusted Jesus Christ and Christ alone as your Savior, you put your faith in Him, your belief in Him, because of God's spiritual work in your life through the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, you are in the Holy Spirit, you are in Christ Jesus, you are in community, in relationship with the Father, with the Trinitarian Godhead. This is big stuff. A little heady, not warm and fuzzy, not a lot of puppy stories to go with it. But it's big and heavy, and it's important that we understand it as we continue in the book of Ephesians. The response to being in Christ, we would simply say, is to bless God, to glorify God, to worship God. And we'll look more at this word blessing in a second, but the first so what lesson I would ask you is do you speak well of God? 
We talk about a lot of things in the commerce of language. We, talk, we tell about our kids, we talk about our job, we talk about promotions, losses, businesses, we talk about whether we've got cancer, whether we're going for treatments, so forth and so on. We talk a lot about what's horizontal in our life. Not a thing wrong with that. But how do you speak about God? Only when you're around folks in this room and friend, among friendlies? Years ago, I adopted a phrase that I use when people cliche ask, how are you doing? And I always say, in God's great kindness, better than I deserve. Now, a friend of ours used the latter half, but I used the first half. It's cumbersome, but I can get away with it. In God's great kindness, better than I deserve. And it's amazing how that will trigger a conversation about half the time. They'll look up at me. When I go to work with uh, the fine men and women at Vanderbilt, who I spend a lot of time in the hospital, um, uh, I make it a point to be the nicest patient they've ever seen that day. Because I've learned a thing over a lot of years dealing with my issues. Um, these are people. And all they see all day long are people that are suffering and crotchety and in pain and curmudgeony and drug seekers and all the above. And I want to be that one patient that day that's at least nice and appreciative to them. It's amazing how it makes my health care go like this. This is my health care plan. Be really nice to the people that take care of you. <laughs> They're human beings. They've studied a long time. Many of you in the medical profession would echo this. It's a tough deal. It's so common. But listen, if you take interest in them and speak kindly to them, uh, ask about them. Last week I went for a procedure and I asked the person taking my BP and whatnot, how, are you, how was your Christmas and New Year? And she stopped in her tracks and looked at me. And I'm giving her eye contact. Just ask, how, how was it? Tell me about it. Asking questions, showing interest in her. How do you speak about God? I'm busted when I walk in the door. They know I'm a preacher. He. You can use it. You can use your relationship with Christ. Do you ever talk about him anywhere? I'm not a guilt-motivating person, but if this makes you feel a little guilty, let be, be that as it may. Do you ever talk about him outside the boundaries of your safe haven of Christian friends? And you've got to find the language. You can't use my words. You've got to find someone, you got to find something you're comfortable with. But the person who understands that he's in relationship with God ought to speak well. That's what this passage is about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Three times blessed, blessed, blessing. They're in the past tense, all of them, in the original text. He has blessed us. This was done before eternity, which we'll look at in detail in a moment. Let's differentiate right away between tangible and intangible blessings. If you began taking some notes about how God's blessed you, more than likely, as I will from time to time, I think about stuff and things and check boxes that God did this, God did that, God answered this prayer. Not a thing wrong with that. In the Old Testament world, blessing was prosperity of crops, of herds, vineyards that were overproducing, lots of sons. Great to have daughters, but in the Old Testament Semitic world, you wanted boys. Lots of sons, more land. That's how blessing was enumerated. But here, Paul says very specifically, every spiritual blessing. Not material. Not horizontal. Listen, nothing wrong with horizontal blessings. Paul's talking about spiritual blessings. 
And so we have to differentiate that because we tend to run to, he's blessed me with a, a great marriage, with a great job, with health, whatever it is. Those are horizontal. Paul's speaking of vertical. Notice also we already possess them who has blessed us. These happened in eternity past. To say it another way, you never need to ask for God to bless you with these things because he already has. You can respond to it, which we'll talk about, but you never need to ask God to bless you with the things we're about to begin studying. Notice the prepositions. Those of you who are Bible students, precept, uh, BSF, or you lead a community group, prepositions, the pronouns in chapter 1, in Christ, the word for Christ, the pronouns for Christ, the references to Christ, they're off the chart. They're, they're, there's so many there, they're easy to miss, but then when you start looking, they're easy to see. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Paul does not use these words cavalier. They are deliberate. They are the very word of God. He's blessed us with every, with every, in the heavenly places, a sphere not worldly and in Christ. So you possess them, we don't need to ask for them, and we read this. Now, some of them, I'm just gonna go through them quickly, we'll unpack them more in the future, we'll look at one, actually two today. The first one is he chose us, the second one is he predestined us, the third is that he adopted us, the fourth he redeemed us, the fifth he forgives us, the sixth he has made known the mystery of his will, the seventh given an inheritance, and eight sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at all of those in detail as we go through chapter one. But just to show you, he begins, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let me name a few. So you, when you read, you've got to reorient yourself to the way we think of some of these terms and see what the context, what Paul the Apostle is telling us about these words and these terms. The Western Christian focus, I am as suspect to it and guilty of it as anyone. I'm not pointing a finger here. We have a consumer view of Christ. We pray for fine and good things. We pray for our marriages. We pray for our children. We pray for health. You will get to that stage in your life where you will pray a lot about health. It's going to happen to all of us. Maybe not you personally, but it'll happen to people you love. It'll happen to your parents. When you hear the first time you hear cancer, first time you hear dementia, Alzheimer's, first time you hear juvenile diabetes, first time you hear anything, all of a sudden you get real diligent in praying about health issues. It's the way we're wired. Um, we're consumer Christians. None of that's wrong. None of that's wrong. But chapter one of Ephesians is to reset and reframe your focus and mind to say, why don't you think vertical a little bit and not always horizontal? Why not come to Christianity not as just a consumer, God hasn't answered all my prayers, to a how do I respond to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? It is a bit of a challenge. Um, has God answered every prayer you've ever prayed? Has he given you everything you've ever asked for? Of course not. And sanctimonious Christians we are, what do we do? We explain it very in a clever way. Well, God knew it wasn't good for me. Well, God has something better in mind. Or when something goes afoul, we talk about God having to take us through that to get to the next thing. And you know, a lot of times I just think God says, no. Next question. 
Now we got to figure it all out, but God just says, no. It's not that hard when you look at the way you parent. Do you say yes to everything your child asks for? If you do, we have some parenting classes you need to go to. You better learn to say no a lot. You'll say yes to everything your child asks for. You shouldn't give your child everything he or she asks. Even if you can, you shouldn't do it. Well, I had to work so hard to get what I had. And look what God did through making you work hard to get to where you are versus somebody giving you everything. And we wonder why we have an entitlement culture. God says no to a lot of things. So why would we look at these blessings? Well, God hasn't blessed me with the husband, the wife, the children, the health, whatever, when we've missed entirely the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, which are eternal, not temporal. They are spiritual, not worldly. They are not material in the sense that we think of them. Again, John Stott, the distinctive blessings of the new covenant are spiritual not material. For example, God's law written in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, a personal knowledge of God and the forgiveness of sins. When you think of how many times God, God forgives you, again and 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 again. Is that more important than the horizontal consumer Christian thing we pray for? Yes. But our framework is so horizontal, sometimes we're not vertically focused. Well, you and I are to bless God. We're to speak lavishly, judiciously, excitedly, truthfully about what God's done for us. And Ephesians 1 will give you plenty of fodder to speak about him. Now, this predetermined blessing began in eternity past. Look again at verses 4 to 6 in your booklet or Uh, in your Bible, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, everyone struggles with the doctrine of election. But this passage teaches election in perhaps one of the most, one of the clearest passages in the New Testament. And so I want to make six observations about election. We hold to the doctrine of election here at Fellowship. You may not be there. That's all right. We're all on a journey. John Stott writes, didn't I choose God? Somebody asks indignantly, to which we answer, Yes. Indeed, you did, freely, but only because in eternity he chose you first. And I want to give you six observations about the doctrine of election. Some you may have heard, some perhaps not. Number one, election was God's plan before creation. Election was God's plan before creation. Uh, These blessings were in eternity past. Lloyd is fond of, and I love it, there's no plan B. Before the foundation of the world, before he created man in his image, Adam, before he did anything environmentally to put Adam on a planet, before that time, these blessings were in place. And he chose us, he elected us before creation. We might call it pre-creation eternity. He had a determined plan that he would adopt 
sons and daughters. Secondly, election is taught in the Bible. It's not man-made. Election is clearly taught in Scripture. It's not man-made. Many people who object to or were, grew up in a, a system of religion or, or a church that does not believe or teach the doctrine, teaches quite contrary, um, you need to see this is in the text, not man-made. In fact, it would be a strange man-made doctrine if you think of it from that grid. Uh, he chose Abram. He chose Isaac and Jacob. He chose David. He chose a nation called Israel, a stiff-necked and stubborn people. Every prophet who penned a letter, he chose them. He chooses John the Baptist. He chooses his parents. He chooses Mary to bear the incarnate Son of God. He chooses the Twelve. He chooses Paul. In fact, John upbraids his disciples at one point. In John 15, he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Election is taught throughout Scripture. It's so big in Scripture, we tend to miss it. It's not a man-made doctrine. Thirdly, election is not meant to encourage sin, but rather encourage holiness and righteousness. And this, again, is one of the arguments brought up. Well, election just means you can sin. It just encourages people to sin. Well, on the one hand, I would say, sure, I can see that. But that's misapplying a doctrine, not whether the doctrine is true or taught in the Bible. We can misapply all kinds of doctrines. For example, we love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But have you read Ephesians 2? You were, and 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. You had no hope. You were a goner. You were done. You were toast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. We like that passage. We like that verse. We like that doctrine. Do we like the doctrine we're dead in our trespasses and sin? We're all going to hell? Doctrines can be misapplied. It doesn't matter if we like the doctrine. The issue is the purpose here, which Paul articulates beautifully, that we would be holy and blameless. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless. So election was to inculcate the idea, the reason I'm choosing you is that you will be holy and blameless. And then he continues, in love he predestined you. For election has nothing to do with what we do, but completely has to do with what he's done. Election has nothing to do with what we do, but what he has done. Remember, we're all destined to hell. All of us have turned away. None of us are righteous. No, not one. We all deserve hell in a handbasket. And so election has to do with what Christ has done, that he saves us, not what we do. Five, election is not unfair, nor does it take away the work of salvation. Election is not unfair, nor does it take away the work, quote unquote, of salvation. Again, God chose us. Now, he did not choose us because we were better sinners. He didn't say, let's look around and see. Let's look down the foundation of time. Oh, Jeff, Susan, Mary, Lisa, they'll choose me when they're in college, high school, whatever. They'll choose me, so I'll choose them. That's not election or adoption or predestination. Because this is before the foundation of the world he did these things. He deposited these blessings in the heavenly places, in the person and work of Christ Jesus, that we should be holy and blameless. So that bank has already been built. He didn't do it based on our response. Yet, there is a tension that we hold because it doesn't remove the work, 
quote unquote, that's not a good word, but I want to use it, the work of salvation, meaning at some point you have to trust, you have to believe, you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So there is the human response. You're chosen, but at some time, maybe when you were a child in the church you grew up in, maybe in a lot of kids come to Christ in college, some in their high school years, some may come to Christ after college. At some point, you said, by faith, I trust in Christ and Christ alone. You put your trust in him to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And we look at that as a linear sequence of events, which God is beyond and above. But nevertheless, the two tensions exist. Second Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen us from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in truth. Listen again. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Faith in the truth, believing. Sanctification, the process the Spirit transforms us into Christ-likeness, but He's chosen us. The doctrine is taught through many places. Lastly, before I leave you, number five, election is not unfair. I find it striking that of the list of spiritual blessings, the first one Paul names is he chose you. It's important to Paul. It's important to God that you understand you weren't good enough to get to God. He was kind enough to choose you. Six and last, and this point helped me more than anything. Election only has application for believers. Election only applies to the believer in Christ. And some of the the noise around people who don't like the doctrine of election is looking at illogical conclusions by observing, well, why didn't he choose those people? And what about this? And does it mean he chooses people to go to hell? And they run lots of rabbit trails, which are fine to have discussions about, but the text is not telling us all that. What the text is saying is that it only has application to believers. Who's the book written to? saints. You are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you need to understand, I understand that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. First and foremost, before the foundation of the world, he chose you to be holy and blameless before him. The illustrations used by many, uh, Harry Ironside, uh, Vernon McGee, uh, Alan Redpath, I have searched for years trying to find the originator. It's one of those stories, it's hard to nail down, but you've heard it. All humanity is growing, going down a Broadway. Millions of people going through life down a Broadway. Over to the side is an arch that says, whosoever will. Chiseled on that arch, whosoever will. All of humanity is going down the Broadway, going to hell. We're all lost, we all deserve hell. We're all in a handbasket going to hell. But over to the side, whosoever will. And some of you, hopefully most all of us in this room, have by faith trusted in Christ and Christ alone. We went through that arch that said, whosoever will. And we believed, we trusted, we put our faith in Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Humanity still, still goes. We're all still going to hell. But some go off, whosoever will. And sometime after you come to Christ, you look back on your salvation. And you remember when you trusted Christ. And on the back side of the arch, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. Election only has application for the believer. 
Election means nothing on this side of the arch when we're all going down this teeming stream of humanity destined to hell. It means nothing over. It doesn't apply. And there's no sense worrying the theological questions we can never answer, the theological Gordian knot of why does he choose, who does he choose. Those are unanswerable. And there's a tension that we hold. The doctrine of election clearly taught he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Your argument, I would say, is with Paul and Christ, not with me. He chose you for no good reason. Maybe when we cross the threshold into heaven, we will know the answer to that. I suspect not. That will be one of the divine mysteries. But the offer is to all. The application is only to the believer. So it takes away the, all the what-ifs about people that haven't believed. Now, scripture, scripture teaches election, but we have a finite mind God in his infinite wisdom has designed it that way. Well, we must move on. Verses 4 to 6, God's adoptions are for himself. He elected and chose for himself sons and daughters. He predestined us as adopted children. Now, predestined means predetermined. It means having a plan beforehand. Again, as Lloyd Off says, there's no plan B. God, before eternity began, pre-creation eternity, had a complete plan. No contingencies, no what-ifs, a complete plan. And that plan is implemented from the moment creation starts to when Christ comes to when Christ returns and we will glorify God forever. Now, a fascinating term here is the word adoption. It does not occur often. And when it does occur, it has some very uh, precise applications for the believer. Romans did adopt. There were provisions in the Roman adoption law, but it was very rare. The Old Testament is silent on adoption, except for if a family member dies, the male dies, you take on the responsibility of his family. But the, there's no concept of adoption. It was just taking care of your own. So adoption is a bit of a foreign concept in the Old Testament, but a prominent one in the new, more than likely because the world would understand, Rome and its influence would understand that more. The importance is understanding election and predestination while two separate entities theologically do coalesce. Election God choosing before the foundation of the world predetermined is the plan God has. I can't say what the plan for you might be or me, but I can say he had a plan for Paul, for John the Baptist, for the prophets. He had a plan for his disciples, and as disciple followers of disciples, we would hopefully have the same plan of the Great Commission, the Great Commandment. God's final goal, why did he do this? Verse 5, according to the kind intention of his will. It's a bit of a wordplay as we continue on. In verse 6, it would literally say, to the praise and glory of his grace, which he graced upon us in his beloved, in Jesus. Grace being undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. He graced upon us, and he graced it more, we might say, for amplification, in the beloved, in the work of Christ. In the final end, all of this is to glorify God. That's what Paul is saying in these few verses. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed. He graced upon us in the beloved. So God the Father loves the Son. The Son is in the Father. The Son, because of his full obedience and perfection, is the only offering satisfactory for God, for the sin of mankind. He obeys him to the point of death, even death on a cross. As he leaves, he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell the believer. 
by faith, by trust, by trust alone in Christ, you are granted the person and work of the Holy Spirit who indwells you forever the moment you put your trust in him. So if you are in Christ's spirit, you are in Christ and in the Father, and you have a relationship with the Trinitarian Godhead. I know it's a bit academic, but it's the foundation on what Paul's going to say in the application parts of this chapter, 4, 5, and 6. When Cindy and I had uh, got married, Cindy wanted four children two years apart. She had a wonderful plan for my life. And uh, we had our firstborn child the first time we attempted, and she was born. And at the proper time, we started trying to have child number two. And after five years of infertility, uh, Cindy began researching adoption. Our dining room table, pre-internet, when you had to write letters and mail things off and they mailed you stuff, our, our dining room table became adoption central all these files and packages from all these adoption agencies. And just like today, there's different ways to do it. Um, we chose an agency uh, that was in Dallas, and uh, open adoption was a new thing. And the way they did open adoption was we wrote biographies about ourselves and gave them to the social worker, and then they would select with their process uh, the birth moms, and they would give them biographies to read. Well, the woman who chose us, the birth mom, was 17. And she read two or three biographies, and she picked us. And she picked us for two reasons. One, because we were Christians. And two, because she herself had always wanted a big sister, and we had a big sister. Well, it was remarkable, because it was about nine months after all the paperwork was done, that we were given a phone call saying, we have a baby girl, do you want her? Cindy says, yes. I said, would you like to see a picture or something first? She goes, no, yes, I want that baby. So in a pell-mell of feverishness, we go to the adoption agency when they set the time up, and uh, a, a little, uh, the foster care mom dressed this little two-week-old infant up, and we, we staged it. So Hannah went into the back room and got her little sister and brought her little sister to Cindy and me. We got a little shaky video of that whole thing. And we adopted this little girl. I'd never seen her. Didn't know anything about her. Came into our life. Blessed us incredibly. That birth mom chose Cindy and me. Fast forward, we always wanted, Cindy always wanted four. So we were on again, off again. She wanted more, I didn't. I wanted more, she didn't. Back and forth, as some of you have wrestled with. So finally, we, the stars aligned. I said, look, if we're going to do this, we've got to get on it. We're getting in our 40s. This is not getting any easier or quicker. We need to get on it. So we went after a sibling group, two at one, two at once. That way we'll get our four no more. And so um, <laughs> we're, we're working on that. And um, we had a, a couple of children identified in Moscow in an orphanage. And in those days, you paid about 20000 or more, and then you went over there, and you paid bribe money for three, four, five, six weeks to get out of the country. And that was kind of the way it was done. And I just had lots of angst about that. And Cindy was praying for the money, and I was praying for two children. And for once, God answered my prayer, not hers. And uh, we got a phone call from our social worker in D.C., and she said, listen, I've got um, a couple of kids I'd like you to meet. They're a sibling group, and I'd like you to meet them. Sure, let's meet them. So we drove down to Washington, D.C. in a little tiny church. The foster care parents would have their continuing education. The kids were playing in a little playroom, and there were a dozen, maybe 14 children. So we go down into this little basement, and um, they said, you can't talk to the children specifically, but you can play with any of them. 
So we're sitting there and they're watching us through this, you know, glass thing. So we're on the floor playing with, you know, blocks and balls and whatnot and these two little kids. So we come out and I say, Cindy, why not? Why, why wouldn't we? And so that process went forward and we adopted our next two children. We chose them. Now, hear me real carefully. I'm not in the place of God. Nor was that birth mom. But we chose those children. That woman chose us for no good reason. What, what can you know about a person when you adopt them? And of course, they know nothing about you. But in our minds, you don't have any guarantees when a child's born biologically. Some of you know. Not for everybody. Not saying it is. I'm not saying everyone needs to adopt. I don't abide that philosophy. We adopted because we wanted a family of four. And when we adopted these children, we chose them and we loved them. Just like you love your children. The two biggest problems in raising not only biological but adoptive children are the parents, not the children. But over the years of 25 years ago for the first adoption and 17 years ago for the second two adoptions, the thing I've gone back to again and again and again and again is that I, Michael, was a throwaway, illegitimate, orphaned child spiritually. And nobody loved me spiritually but Christ. No matter what your parentage and your background, how great your home may or may not have been, there's one who loves you. And he chose you. And if you don't know Christ, most of what I said today, forget. But that whosoever will. Because the offer is universal. It's to all. Whoever places their trust in Christ and Christ alone is given a free gift called eternal life. And the rest of us might start to make some sense. But the reality is we're all spiritual orphans. We're all spiritually thrown away people. We're all worthless. We're all dead in our trespasses and sin. And he chose you because he loves you. And he's given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every, every spiritual blessing. Why do we ask for more? Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us in a lavish way we cannot begin to understand. Although a bit of a ponderous and provocative passage, my prayer is that each of us will come to terms with the fact that you loved us, you chose us, that we have been blessed far beyond our comprehension, that we spend a lot of energy on the horizontal, not all ill-spent, but perhaps some misdirected. And to be recalibrated to think on what you have already done in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. And to know that you loved us so much, you adopted us to be your children. Full rights to the kingdom, full rights to an inheritance that will boggle the mind of anything the world has ever seen. Help us to recalibrate, to reframe our view of you. We need your help to do that. 
So we desperately pray in Christ's name. Amen.